Would you turn to Genesis uh, chapter 3? <clears throat> While you do that, I'll just share a couple of uh, things coming up in the life of our church that you want to be thoughtful of. Next Sunday is a baptism Sunday, so I want to welcome you to that. I'm excited. There's uh, several uh, individuals who are going to share their testimony with you, and uh, those Sundays, uh, that's always, to me, the, the best part of the Sunday, so that's this coming Sunday. Also, uh, Memorial Day weekend, you may have seen some of the advertisements. There's going to be a Memorial Day picnic um, at our house. We, we're ready to share the barn. It's good enough now to fill with people. A lot of mud all around it, uh, but we're really excited. So it's a great time to an opportunity if you consider yourself a little bit new in the church to come relax visit. There's really very little agenda apart from eating and enjoying our, one another's company. So um, it's a great time, and it, it, that's the Memorial Day weekend. So those are coming up in the life of our church. And um, I hope if you want to know more about this on sycamorehill.life, there'll be a place you can go and learn. <clears throat> okay, we're in Route 66, which if you're a guest this morning, is an an initiative we, we started a few weeks ago where we thought this year or the, over the next 66 weeks, we're going to follow the story of the Bible Monday through Friday. We're going to read the Bible together. So you, uh, this, this is our second full week of reading. And uh, by now you should have questions if you've been reading. So last week was, this past reading was the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I imagine you have some questions about that. This coming week is going to be the uh, life of Joseph, who's going to be the uh, favorite son of Jacob. And, you know, your question might sound something like this, if, you, if you've been reading closely. Why in the world would God use this messed up family? Okay. Uh, I suppose you didn't have your family to use. Uh, but what family survives scrutiny? But you have these questions. Why would he use this messed up family? And then when they do these really dark things, really dark things, like, why doesn't he do something? Why do they seem to get away with it when other people don't? If you have that question, I don't want you to feel like uh, you've unnerved the Lord uh, because you've gotten around the story uh, Genesis, I guarantee you, is smarter than we are. And in so many ways, uh, the Lord, the power, particularly of the book of Genesis, uh, maybe more so than the many other than the word, is where the narrative, the narrative is goading you to draw these questions out. So don't be ashamed of those questions if you get them. The, if you, when you get them, you're like on the first step. I would say take that question and actually dwell in it with the Lord. Work it out with the Lord. He, he is expecting that you're going to ask it. And then we're, we're going to, in due time, we're, we're going to walk through it together. So next Sunday, we're going to start. We're going to move from the prelude of the story, which is today's final message. And the next Sunday, we're going to head into the story of the promise, which is going to be, uh, begin with Abraham. So that's coming. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we are going to deal with the conclusion of the prelude. So we saw that God created everything very good. We saw that mankind is the crowning glory 
of that creation. Today, we're going to deal with what some call the fall. So let me start with this. What is the, is, think about the difference between the word fall and the word falling. When I hear that someone fell, in my mind, it happened and it's over. Like There was a point in time where they were standing upright, but they fell. But that's over with. When I hear that someone's falling, I hear they're presently accelerating towards the earth in some way, right? They're, they're in the act of falling. It's not done yet. It's a continuous sort of idea. So at one level, I want to say, perhaps you might say today, when we go to Genesis 3, we're in the fall. And in fact, in my mind, regrettably, the... Uh, the title of the third chapter of the Bible here is The Fall. Uh, and that might lead us to assume that it happened and it's over. But what I want to suggest is that Genesis 3 is not really intended to be read by itself. Actually, the reality is, is in the prelude of the Bible, which is Genesis 1 through 11, that Genesis 3 through 11 belong to a body of text, a series of stories that are all oriented around the same sort of questions. And when we dice these stories up into their individual parts, what ends up happening is sometimes we render them a little less, some of them we render harmless, and some of them we sort of diffuse of their power. And, and additionally, when we dice them up into their individual stories, we get caught by the curious questions of each one. So, you know, is there a historical Adam? Do people really live this long? Uh, you know, you read it. Right? These are the questions you have. It, the, the ark, how big is it really in modern days? Is it on Mount Ararat? Have they ever found the ark? Is the, was the flood global or was the flood local? The two of, really, he brought mosquitoes on board? Why would you do that? Right? All of these kind of curious little questions that actually cloud, they serve to cloud the broader point. If you've ever read, Genesis 1 through 11 does not read like any other portion of the Bible. It's like a blurry it's epic. Uh, it's intended to be read where you really grab, at, at the very least, at the very least, you grab the big things. And when we dice this prelude up, we diffuse it a little bit. Today what I want to do is I want us to feel the, um, the, force, the force of all of these stories, what they're trying to say. Did we fall or are we falling? That's the question. So before we uh, kind of set into Genesis 3, what I want you to imagine is that the spirit that's behind the pen that's writing Genesis is uh, anticipating a series of questions. And we're going to look at five of them, maybe a hint at a sixth this morning. So if, if you started the Bible reading for the first time in your life and you read Genesis 1 and you saw God created the world really, really good, Genesis 2, he creates mankind, puts them in a paradise with the intent of living forever. The first question that an astute reader would come to is, well, what happened? Because it sure doesn't feel like that now. Another way you could ask this question is, is, why is there, if that's what God did, why is the world that I know full of evil and death? 
You might even say it this way, if you were going to put the problem in the Lord's lap, why would a good God allow for all of this mess? Okay, let's call that question one. And Genesis 3 broaches it. Let me pick up in the first verse and uh, we'll see what it has to say here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If we were to ask ourselves, what is the motivation behind the first sin of mankind? I think we could say it's something like they desired to be like God. And we could expound upon a little more. We could say they no longer were satisfied in the way God made them, and they coveted things that the Lord himself possessed. Something like that. And if we were to ask, you know, how did this all go down? By what was the method of this moment? We could say the serpent used chaos and confusion uh, to tempt the woman and the man. There's this, we laugh, a couple weeks ago we said, right, God's network on earth is always to move something from chaos to order. And we said that every form of transgression or step away from the Lord is a motion uh, away from the order of God towards chaos. Well, the serpent sort of immediately starts with confusion, half-truths, confusing details. Why does he go to the woman when the man is there? Why doesn't the, why do, you know, why is, what, isn't the, There's these moments of disorder that it seems like the serpent is leveraging to break through, and he does. And if we ask, well, what happens if this moment, the sin, this first sin, results in curses and ultimately in death? Look at this uh, same chapter, look at the 16th verse. I'm going to pick up where this is the Lord beginning to speak the curses over the woman and the man. Here's what he says in 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband 
and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Those are the consequences. You could summarize the consequences this way, and there's a few others that show up in in the chapter here, that the lives of the man and the woman are made difficult. We see that. We see uh, that they're set in an environment of persistent disharmony. It's another feature. This, This statement at the end of the woman's curses about her desire for her husband, but he shall rule over you, that the phrase is hard to understand. The meaning is there's going to be a persistent disharmony between the woman and the man. They're going to be placed outside of the garden and therefore outside of the fruit of the tree of life, which will ultimately commit itself to death. That's, those are the consequences. Another way that you could, you could talk about these consequences is, is like in terms of discord. The Lord has cursed them and they, well, they've cursed themselves, you might say. They, because they, there's discord between themselves and their heavenly father, they're now cursed to be at discord between themselves and the earth, and between themselves, one another. It's sort of full bore disharmony and separation. This story is the source of all of our difficulty. Now, I say the word source here, I don't mean the sum of our difficulty. It's the source of it. This is why I don't like the word, it's the fall. That suggests as though the fall came and it happened. I would say this is the beginning of the falling. Is how we should look at it. It's the source. Which you might ask this next question, which is, well, how, how you phrase this? You could phrase it several ways. Like, well, it was just them. Like, once they died, don't we get a do-over? Like, what about the next generation? Didn't Whitney Houston once say she believed the children are the future? Right? What about the children? Or you could say it this way. This might be a little bit more of a, a bite to it, but I think, I think we've asked it this way. That seems like an awful lot of consequence for eating an apple. Maybe you've ever asked it that way. Like, really? So they eat a fruit, and here we are. The world is what it is because they ate something they couldn't eat. A few thoughts about this. First of all, we want to guard ourselves from like trivializing what the man and the woman do here. They didn't just eat a fruit. They committed an act of treason. That's what it was. It was an attempted coup over the Lord. They saw that the Lord had something that they didn't. And they tried to supplant his authority. Now, we don't think of it this way because, because 
uh, of our chronic unrighteousness. We regularly, we regularly are acting treasonously before the Lord, right? We do this so often that when we see them do it, we go, it's no big deal. It happens to be a big deal. It's just we regularly do it. So we've grown numb to it. We regularly assume God doesn't have the best for us in mind. We regularly distrust his will for our lives. We regularly think if we had the power that he, would, he does, we would be a whole lot better off. I would have solved my own problems if I had his power and his wisdom, but I'm stuck waiting on him. We regularly think that way. So we look at their sin and we go, really? But let's just call it what it is. It's an act of treason. That's the first thought. It's not trivial. The second thought is, well, let's just look. Are we really paying the price for one little sin? Let's see what happens in the next generation, which, you know, you read this, so you know where I'm going. Look at chapter four. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? We'll stop there. It seems like the root of this or at least at the beginning of this problem, is a material difference between the offerings. Abel seems to give an offering that the Lord has regard for. Cain gives an offering, and the Lord does not have regard for it. And we're we're not going to go slow enough today to to observe it because we're trying to view the prelude in its entirety. But we could just say that it's the root or the beginning of the problem is the Lord seems to regard Abel in a way that uh, he does not regard Cain. It's the, but what's really at the heart of the problem is the way that Cain responds. Cain seethes in this. That's what happens. He broods in this. Somehow he sees what his brother's, his brother's righteous act And he feels like his brothers, by the way, I don't even have to say this right. You know it so well, right? You ever been there where somebody else has done something correct, made us, and their correctness, which has nothing to do with us, makes us look bad. And then we hate them for it. That feeling, that's what happened here. That's what happened. And the Lord 
catches up with Cain. He finds Cain in this and he says, hey, there's a way out. You don't need to be like this. But Cain murders Abel. This is one us to appreciate. One generation earlier, what's the big deal? It was just a fruit. One generation, murder. Right? One, uh, just to step away from the fruit and we're at first degree murder. God is still apparently walking among people, murder. His own brother, murder. The, actually, this whole story is sort of laced in a pain, the painful setting that all of this takes place around the idea of worship. That's the most tragic element of the story is the seed of the murder of Abel comes from an offering to the Lord. One generation murder. Let me read the consequences to Cain. I'm gonna pick up in the 10th verse. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, I just want to make a quick side note here. Um, I want us to note that the graciousness of God that is already starting to surface in the story. Cain does not get what he deserves. Let the punishment fit the crime, right? I mean, if I were God, <laughs> I don't know if this story would sound like this. Just There already is, and I want us to appreciate that this early on, there's this subtext, there's this undercurrent of a story, which is, why is God not giving people what they deserve? Okay, so... That's going to show up a lot later, okay? But I want, us to, I want you to see it this early. But the Lord meets with him. He counsels him. He warns him. And then instead of killing him, he banishes him. And then in the, in the fear of his banishment, he protects him. The Lord has ensured, albeit the difficult life of Cain, the life of Cain. Cain's going to live beneath the protection of God. Now, this reading and these consequences kind of presuppose a, a third question. So the first question is, is, hey, why, if God made everything so good, why is there evil? And we see, well, it's because mankind attempted a coup against the Lord. Okay, you go, yeah, I, I get that. But 
really all of this? And you go, well, it's not such a small problem, actually. They're kids. One generation away, it's murder one. Like, it's a real problem at work. And then you might come here and go, well, well, what about when somebody sins? What if you just banished them? Like, maybe we could manage sin. Here's an idea. When someone sins, cut him out from the righteous. That way the righteous can continue to, like, improve or fix their problems. And, you know, you just, you put the, put the sin in. We should get an island like Australia and just send all the sinners there, Right? That's, that's it's the idea. It's just kind of the question it presupposes is, well, what if there was a way where the Lord literally disciplined those who were sinning, kind of disciplined and judged them? He, see, he's put them in a circumstance that's essentially hopeless. That would be the thought. Is this hopeless? He's being taken even farther east to the land of wandering where it's even harder to, harder to he's going to be double cursed, harder to farm, harder to live. See, this situation, now there's a real hope for, real hope for goodness because now when someone does something bad, their life is even more diminished. There's just no possible way that Cain can thrive. There's no way he's going to have like a flourishing family or anything like that, right? But you know I'm, because you read, you know that's not what happens. What happens when we cut sin out, put it on its own? Well, here's what happens. Verse 17 through 24 is a, the lineage of Cain. And it's a pretty well-described list. It's elegantly written. It's, if you could start with Adam, you have seven names between Adam and the line of Cain to Lamech. So it's very elegant. And you end with this uh, guy named Lamech who's pretty bad. Let me read. I'll pick up in verse 19. This is just... This is the seventh name. And Lamech took two wives, you see? The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I mean, Lamech's bad. He's a gangster. That's the way I see it. He's the picture of heathen power. I just want us to appreciate, it starts with Cain. You banish Cain outside of the presence of the Lord to a world of difficulty, right? You think, okay, that that alone will sort of winnow in a trit sin to essentially being inconsequential on the face of the earth. But that's not what we find. That's not what actually happens. Actually, what we see is that away and outside the presence of the Lord, there seems to be an industrious kind of coalescing of evil. Lamech is worse than Cain. And he has these industrious sons. You see these sons, they have the father of this and the father of that. There's this, what I want us to appreciate is the human will to survive and thrive exists with God or without God. 
And when people are pushed outside the presence of the Lord, it's not as though they just throw their hands up. Sometimes they scratch and claw to redeem themselves by some other method. And, and, and I mean, I'm fascinated by this, by the way. To me, this is its own entire sermon on it, how, how the humankind has regularly mistaken progress for redemption. Industry for hope. Technology for the cure. And what you're watching is actually mankind still, because they're made in the image of God, has a tremendous capacity to progress in their fallen state. So, given time, Cain's line, Cain's line is more robustly evil than it began. Let's read a couple more verses. I'll just pick up verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, if you don't like what I've been saying so far, this is your chance to go, aha, John, you are so wrong. You see, it did work. You cut away Cain, and then you have this line of Seth. By the way, we're going to have this really beautiful, elegant lineage to compare to the line of Cain, right? The line of Seth, it's going to be 10 names, which is another special number, 10 names, and it's going to be set aside, the line of, of, of Cain, and, and instead of ending at Lamech, we're going to end at Noah, and there's two Enochs, but this Enoch is really good, and it's just really well done, and you can say, and, and we know that Noah, you know that Noah's a righteous man because he did your reading, you know that he's a righteous man, and you're going to say, yeah, see, John, it actually did exactly what you thought, what, what we thought it would do is if you just cut the evil away, the good can flourish. I mean, look, we get to Noah. Busted. You might say busted. My question is, when we get to righteous Noah, how many righteous are left? Like, is it a lot of people? It's the thing is, is, well, let's read. Look at chapter six, verses five through eight. This is the inauguration of the Noah story. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, so yeah, we have a righteous man. Uh, it's not simply that Noah is righteous. It's that he's the only one left In other words, given enough time, humankind is falling away. You could say, you think of it this way, the, if there are only two lines in the world, you are either of Cain or of Seth, 
you'd say, given enough time, the line of Cain surpasses the line of Seth. It prevails. You know, we go, well, we got to Noah, but what a lonely thing to say. We only get to Noah. You see, we're not simply falling, we're falling away. The world is falling from the Lord. It wasn't just eating an apple. It was a coup attempt, followed by murder one, followed by being banished and thriving in your banishment. Given time, those banished outside of the shadow of the Most High God prevail on the earth. That's what we see. All we have left is Noah. What I want to suggest is, what, well, I'm going to say this, what I think the Bible is suggesting, the prelude of Scripture is suggesting, is this, this little problem of sin is to mankind by themselves an unrecoverable problem. There is no recovery. You and I, we, we are weaker than the problem. That's what it is suggesting. Given enough time, it wins. It wins. You know, now, I will say this. We can speak this strongly because we have been loved so greatly, okay? So I have the freedom to talk this way and to be honest. Humans can be honest in light of the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ because we have, we have one who's truly righteous, who invades our earth and brings new blood to mankind, right? Because of the great gospel of Jesus Christ, we have hope. But it's in that hope we can be honest with the problem. Left to our own devices, we lose. Because it wasn't simply that we fell. It's not over. We're falling. You and I, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit to change us and fill us and make us new, apart from that, we are exacerbating the problem of our forefather Adam. That's what we see here. Which almost boasts the fourth question, which is, why not start over? Just start over. Wipe the slate clean. You imagine God going, control, ought, delete. Just reboot it. Why doesn't he do that? You, you might say, and I would say, well, you mean like destroy the earth? Yeah, destroy it. You take Noah and just start over with Noah. I mean, like, kill everybody? You might say, that's a serious problem. They're all going to die anyway. Right? I mean, death is the consequence of sin. Everybody's, we're all dead men walking to begin with. Just do it quickly instead of slowly. Maybe we could, like, maybe God would, like, build a boat and bring a flood. What about that? Build a boat, put Noah on the boat bring a big flood, kill everyone else, put animals on the boat. They didn't do anything wrong. Toss them up there, right? Kill everything. And then when the water, just go right back to the old world, right back to the chaos before creation. God brings it right all the way back into chaos and recreates it all the way back out again. That would be, that, that should fix the problem. I'm fairly certain if we have a righteous, no, see, you know what I'm doing here because you read I'm fairly certain if we, if we have a righteous snow, we could start over again. So let's see what happens here. The, so God does that, right? Chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight is the flood. 
And we get to chapter 8, verse 15. This is when Noah is finally allowed to like walk out of the ark. And I want you to hear the setup. The reader is supposed to be so hopeful. You're going to hear like new creation at work here. Okay? So, <clears throat> verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You see how that sounds like creation? It's like, yeah. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. It's like, yeah, hope. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is like a good start, right? And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord uh, smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's such a frustrating sentence. You know, righteous man gets on a boat, everyone's destroyed, gets off the boat, new creation, builds an altar, sacrifices animals, smoke rises, pleases the Lord, and he says, I'm never gonna do this again, even though, even though the heart of man continues to be so broken. I thought Noah was righteous. Well, not righteous enough. You know, when the Bible says this, someone's righteous, it never really means righteous. There really is only one truly righteous man that has ever come, okay? Everyone else, when, when we use the word righteous, what the Bible means is something like God can work with that person, okay? God can work with you. You can steer, you still hear when he calls, so it's not that Noah was perfect. It's just in a world of people who were, had set their face against the Lord, Noah was still interested in the Lord. But the truth is, anyone who was born of Adam is still will never be more than Adam. Noah's not more than Adam. You and I are not more than Adam. Whatever the sin and the problem of our father Adam, we have that. We have that plus the compounding problems of our corporate sin. Why? Because it's not like we fell, it's because we're falling. A little bit, when you get to the ninth chapter, verse 20, you're gonna see like Dave, uh, Noah's already figured out how to get drunk. He's butt naked drunk in his tent by the ninth chapter of this Bible. And his son, one of his sons is mocking him. It's dark. It's almost as though in the, in the whole affair, sin stowed away. And I don't mean that sin stowed away on the ark. Sin stowed away in the heart of Noah. That's where it went. And it came back out again. We're running out of time. That's okay. We have a, one more quick question here, which is, well, <clears throat> what if, 
This is the purpose of the prelude, is to dry you out of your questions. What if we all work together? I'm talking like global cooperation. Maybe that then, maybe if we all, hands across America I'm talking, if we all really set our minds to it, we could do anything, right? That's how I grew up in grade school. That's what you learned. If we all work together, how happy we will be. So maybe if we all, and, and the Lord says, I'm glad you asked that question. In the 11th chapter, he has this story. He says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found the plains and the land of Shinar and they settled there and they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Let's be, be dispersed over the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people with one language and all this, only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This account is so helpful in my mind to help describe the notion that, because sometimes we just are so simplistic in the way we describe life in Christ and life outside of Christ. And we think all the good things that humans can do are in Christ and everything else is just, it's just not true. You're made in the image of God, whether you're in Christ or you're not. And people have a tremendous capacity to cooperate, especially when they have their face set against the Lord. That's the picture here. Do you know, I've never seen human beings cooperate like they do in world war. We have a massive capacity. The greatest things we've ever done were done to annihilate other peoples. So you, God looks down and what he sees is the solidarity of humanity outside of my presence is one of the greatest evils you can imagine. In, in fact, their building is, it's almost as though they are commemorating with a monument the sin of the garden. Let's build a tower to the heavens to thumb our nose at the Lord as though we have no need of him. We're enough. We've arrived. And in the grace of God, he makes them small again. Right? Go be scared of each other in your little villages. For that's the best way to have hope. I'll close with this idea. When I was a child, I discovered a game that almost everyone here, I would say everyone here discovered. There's no rule book for it. No one ever told me the rules. It just happened. There's a balloon in the living room. And, you know, somebody says, don't let it hit the ground. We all know this game. Everyone's played it. You, you know the balloon, you bat it up, and as a three-year-old, it's not as easy. And it's pretty boring now. Uh, but when you're three or two or four, it's kind of this intriguing uh, game you play where you, the balloon goes up and comes down, you bat it, and you try not to let it touch the ground. Right? If it touches the ground, it, the game is over. We all know how this is played. I want us to I observe, the, the balloon never doesn't fall. It's always falling. 
And nobody has ever won this game, by the way. We've all lost. Given enough time, the balloon touches the ground. There's never been a balloon that hasn't. This is, there's this nature of the balloon is persistently falling. It's always falling. It's never not falling. And we can come in, and you see in the prelude, you come in and there's they make these moments where the Lord kind of externally adjusts something or circumstantially changes something. He kind of taps the balloon and it appears, it appears for a moment. You might even see this way where the circumstances of your life make it appear as though you're ascending. And you're ascending because of some of the external grace of God, but you're never, unless the Lord filled you up with something different, right? Unless the Lord was to actually come into you and fill you up with something, you're never doing anything other than falling. You will fall unless he does something. That's what the prelude says. It says there's no hope for men, no hope at all, unless the Lord is either continually batting us up or you might say, well, or what if he changes the way we are? And that's how the prelude ends. That's how the prelude ends and the story begins. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you in prayer and we say rightfully that the evil in the world, this is not, you are not to blame for this. Nor was it trivial. Nor is it so small that it will die with me, Lord, but that we pass it nor can we cut it out of our lives or banish it or set it aside. Nor can we impute it on one group of people and think if we just got rid of them, the problem would be over, Lord. It stows itself away in the hearts of all humans. Lord, we can't even hope to cooperate outside of you on it, Lord. We come to the end of this passage in desperate need for a different solution. And so, Lord, in the full knowledge of the work of Christ, I pray, I pray, Lord, over anyone's spirit here this morning who feels as though they're in a free fall. I pray the promises of God on them that you have, in fact, not left us to our trouble. But you are the maker of new hearts and you've shown love to people who do not deserve it. Lord, as we set ourselves towards your promise, as we read your word and search for you, I pray that we would follow these questions and bring them to your feet. Ask them so you might answer them, or at least begin to, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.